My name is Cindy Carpian. I'm a part-time senior producer for NPR's Morning Edition, working out of my home in Palo Alto, California. And I must tell you that originally I was going to get a show of hands of anyone who was here yesterday, because even though it's you know, new panel, new stories, I was going to do my same spiel at the top with the same punchline, but um, you don't have to do that now, because I have to tell you that after yesterday's discussion and what people told me afterwards, I sort of had a whole new perspective on this session. People told me after that the intensity and the power of those stories were absolutely amazing. We had representatives from Radio Rookies in New York City, uniquely spoken in Baltimore, KBOO, K-B-O-O in Portland, Oregon. Um, we heard about um, tension within a family over who has a, a full citizen rights and who doesn't, a young woman who attended the funeral of a grandmother she never met. These young people, who I will introduce to you in a moment, will share their stories today. We're also here, those of us in the business already, to not just listen and enjoy, but to learn. There's a Rodgers and Hammerstein line, and I'm going to give 25 cents to the person who could tell me which Broadway musical and which show it came from. By your pupils, you'll be taught... The King and I. Yeah! <laughs> I did not feed him that one. What? I'm really good. What song? Uh, getting to Know You. Oh, my God. Sung by Anna. Thank you so much. <laughs> See what I mean? I mean, I thought it would come from one of the older people in the audience there. Okay. All right. What you will hear today is... Honesty and not being afraid of honesty. Putting yourself out there and a rawness. And I say rawness because our rawness tends to dissipate the more professional or tends to the more professional we become and we forget. These young people are starting out testing radio, testing radio. Some of it's rough. They need guidance. And in talking to them, they know that and they want that. But it's a two-way street. I worked with young reporters at a station in northern Arizona, and some of them are out there. Where are you? Come on. See you. Just one? Where the rest of you go? Anyway, um, I worked with these young reporters after um, being um, at NPR for 17 years. And um, I went in thinking that, you know, I can help. I can pass on my wisdom. I can be, you know, the ultimate mentor. But I also had to face where I had closed off where my creativity was more, had become more tunneled, and they helped me realize that. It also occurred to me that some of the scenes you'll hear today will sound like voices you've heard on public radio, but they're usually in stories beautifully told by, uh, in first person perhaps, you know, stories produced by David Isay or Jay Allison or Joe Richmond or, um, or reporter uh, John Bewin, who you heard this morning in the editing session. This is an opportunity for what I call factory direct told by those very voices and produced by those very voices. So today we have representatives from, I just went off mic, Youth Radio based in Berkeley, Blunt Youth Radio Project in Portland, Maine, Youthtopia in Santa Cruz, California, and Radio Arte in Chicago. And I'd like to call up first uh, Sarah Harris, who works with Youth Radio. Youth Radio is the oldest, I believe, of all the organizations here. It's been operate in operation for over 10 years. So in the last 10 years, the number of organizations that are now making it their mission 
to teach radio to young people, and not only just teaching radio, but you're talking about teaching creative skills like, you know, writing, using technology. Um, in one of their bios, it said critical thinking, and it's it's truly amazing. And Sarah um, works for Youth Radio in L.A., and um, they have what? How, you're going to have to tell us here. I want you to explain. How okay. M- how many satellites? How many satellites? Well, um, Youth Radio has been around since 1990, and we have uh, bureaus, if you will, in Washington and Atlanta, and the headquarters, the mothership is in Berkeley, Bay Area, Oakland, San Francisco, and uh, we have a beautiful studio as well. We have studios up there, and there are boards and, you know, uh, that young people get to actually learn how to, learn how to produce in studio, et cetera. Um, and we have a, another satellite program, a bureau in Los Angeles, um, and that's where I'm working on my lonesome, but in very close collaboration with um, the folks in Berkeley. And um, the students that I work with, a couple of them are here. We basically um, are doing stories looking at Southern California as a region and also Northern Baja California. So um, Beauty Martino is here from Tijuana, and we've been doing a cross-border radio project. Um, and there's also Cassandra Gonzalez, who's here, and you probably heard her yesterday ask a couple questions. Uh, she does a lot of stories about juvenile justice. And uh, I work very closely, we do, with um, community groups in Los Angeles because we have a base at... Um, NPR West, we have a little desk, and they very nicely let us sit there and edit stuff and and write, um, us, me, because there's not a lot of room for more than one person. But our students are all over the city, and so we sort of shuttle around um, and work very closely with community organizations that have spaces, computers, um, and help do the outreach and just help maintain the contact with the young people, make sure they get um, to the workshops on time, et cetera, and then we continue the relationship sort of at will, and um, anyone who wants to tell more stories, they continue to tell their stories, and hopefully we get them on nationally. It's it's been happening, and um, locally, and on our website. And you work with Beauty on this story. Yeah, and the story that you're going to hear is Beauty Martino Ruiz and Elena Alvarez live in Tijuana um, on the border, which is a town that you probably all have heard of before, but for them, it's not a town that everybody's heard of before. It's the town they live in. And um, we originally did this, uh, the cross-border project, which is with youth in L.A. who speak Spanish and are bilingual, and youth in Tijuana who are also bilingual and sort of cross the border on the airwaves. And it's called audio postales, audio postcards. Um, so it's like sending postcards across the border, even for some students who can't cross because they're in the U.S. and they don't have papers. So if they were to go to Mexico, they couldn't come back. Um, we don't do that. But we send the voices across the border, and it airs on both sides. So Beardy's worked on that project, and out of that came the piece that you're going to hear, which actually aired on um, All Things Considered, that she did with her friend Elena Alvarez. Oh, I didn't it. Mm-hmm. Great. So here is Beardy Martino. Hi. <laughs> 17 years old, high school graduate, uh, born and ra- we said born and raised in Tijuana, but yes. I have to tell you, I have to ask you a question because in your bio it yeah. said you don't like getting into trouble and pointless discussion. Oh, I don't. You prefer dialogue above everything. Yeah. Oh, that's because uh, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like uh, that I am like a very peaceful person. I'm, I just think that these kind of uh, pointless discussions just I'm just wasting my time if I'm in them like. 
I don't know. I just, I used to discuss a lot with my brother, my big brother. He's 20 years old. So that's why this idea came up. Like, hey, you know what? Let's just don't discuss. Be happy and things like that. <laughs> Have a nice life. <laughs> well, we had a little bit of an introduction to your story. Do you want to say something about it before, or should we listen to it first? No, I think that it's better that we heard it we first. We hear it first. Yeah. Okay, border story. Well, hi, my name is Viridiana Martino Ruiz. I'm 17 years old, and I'm from Tijuana, Baja California, Mexico. My name is Elena Alvarez Huerta. I, I, I was born in L.A., but I've been living all my life here in, in, in Tijuana. That's the sound of the revolving door between the U.S. and Mexico. Because we're young and we're living here in the border, we have access to a lot of things, including a lot of English. So we can tell our story without a translation. We also have more freedom to cross La Línea than most people in the city. Because I do have that famous green card. And I have a U.S. passport. Here on the border, we use some words that you should probably know so you can understand our story better. Well, when we say here, we are meaning Mexico. And when we use the word there, we are meaning the U.S. The place where a lot of people in Tijuana would like to visit, but can't because they don't have their visa. Or that famous green card. There's also this other two words that we also use. Gringo, uh, you know what that means. And La Migra, the border patrol. I need you to go in for a quick random inspection, okay? Come right in the middle right there, it's a computer-generated inspection. The things that separate us from the U.S. are kind of like concrete walls, barbed wire, and also La Migra. But there are borders inside Mexico, too. A lot of really poor people live in Tijuana, and also a lot of really rich people live here. I live in the top of a hill. It's a gated street, and we have a lot of security, and it's it's a nice neighborhood. Well, I wouldn't mind living in a house like yours. I mean, <laughs> mine, I'm, I'm not complaining about the size. I mean, it's not like a big house, but it's, well, actually, it is kind of crowded. <laughs> it's very little. Okay, so this is my mom. Mom, Maria Felix Huerta. This is what she does for a living. She sells uh, fish tacos. Tengo viviendo aquí en Tijuana 20 años. 20 años. My mom is from Jalisco, and she has lived here for 20 years. Uh, she gets up at 5 o'clock in the morning every day to make fish tacos, and she doesn't stop working until 9 p.m. Well, we don't have a lot of money, but, well, we have enough, and we're happy here. So my dad gets up at 5 a.m. too, but the difference is that he works in the U.S., so he earns dollars instead of pesos, which means that me and my family can afford to live in a big house and we have also access to U.S. health insurance. Even with these differences, uh, Bidi and I have this big thing in common. Uh, both of us can co-live in the U.S., but, well, neither one of us wants to. We like it here, and we're probably going to stay. Okay, for this last part, you need to know two more words. Beaner and frijolero. Beaner is what ignorant or racist Americans call us Mexicans. And frijolero is us Mexicans making fun of the U.S. citizens 
José Piner. Yo ya estoy hasta la madre de que me pongan sombrero. This song is by a Mexican punk group called Molotov. It's called Frijolero. And that's what it says. People from Mexico saying, well, we don't like you and you are a gringo. And people from the U.S. saying, well, why don't you go back to where you came from, you beaner? It's like, don't call me frijolero, you gringo. Well, don't call me gringo, you beaner. Well, some people really think that way. Of course, those people are not the reason we want to stay here in Tijuana. Don't call me gringo, you beaner. Uh, I'm Elena Álvarez and I'm Miri Martino in Tijuana, Tijuana México. Now, Vidi, it's it's hard enough to uh, tell a story with one reporter voice. Yeah. Um, here you were. This is a friend of yours. Yes. So, how did you work together? How did you figure out who would say what? Well, actually, it was kind of a hard work because we had a, a lot of ideas and we have to share them and try to to choose the ones that were, like, common from her, from Lina and from me that were, like, almost the same ones. And we have to, to write and rewrite the outline once and again and again and again because we became, uh, everything became, like, began, like, with only just one idea and it turned out, like, Another very totally different, um, but it was very fun. I had a lot of fun, and with the help of Sarah Harris, we were like, uh, she was like, no, 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 girls, don't, don't, uh, don't go this way. Come on, the, uh, this other like road or something. Oh, like. give us an example. Do you remember one where you went in one direction and? Yeah, it's just that the the idea first was to give um, like uh, another vision of of the city of Tijuana, because. Uh, there's like a funny story. There was this time that I was um, hanging out in my friend's house. So we were watching t uh, TV. We were watching like the MTV channel. So there's this uh, this show that I don't remember the, the name of the show. That the, they tell you some kind of myths. myths and, and at the end they, they do like some kind of a little investigations. And at the end they tell you if the, myths, the myth is true or false. Something like that. And there was this myth that was like, oh, Tijuana is a dangerous city. And they were all along like the investigation. They, they were going um, through the parties and kind of dizzy effects and things like that and beer and drugs. And the sad part is that at the end they say that Tijuana was a dangerous city, that the myth was true. So I, we were like kind of uh, disappointed and sad and mad at, at the show because um, MTV is like all, uh, from all the U.S. can uh, can see the, the, that show and a while after they translated and they, they pass them on all Latin America. So it, it was like very, very sad to see that. I mean, what about us? We're like normal teenagers in Tijuana and we actually don't go to those parties I know that you can find like drugs and, and, and beer and things like that, like promiscuity and things like that, but not everything is like that. It's, it's very sad. So we wanted to, to do this piece to give, to give not, not a better, better image, but a different image of, 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 of the city, like the other side of it.
And were there parts or ideas that you did not keep in, that you said, well, we have six or seven ideas, like you said, you went to your house, you went to the house, and then you used the song, and and I love the way, of course, that you did the, dic- the dictionary, <laughs> you know, you. the terms. It was, it was wonderful. But were there parts that you, you decided, okay, we, we have seven, but we're only going to use five? Or? Yeah. Actually, we had like, a lot of interviews um, with my dad that, like, you heard he works at the U.S. And we asked him, like, how is it for him to work in the U.S. but live, live in Mexico? And he has to cross the border, like, every day in the morning and things like that. Also, my mom, and we talk about the the mixing of, of different cultures in Tijuana, because since it is like in the border from San Diego, like and uh, such an important like city in the U.S., most of the people from the south of Mexico go to TJ to Tijuana, fi- trying to find like better opportunities, like better jobs and things like that. But many of them cannot go to the U.S. Like they. St- they get like, stuck in Tijuana. So we have uh, a lot of uh, people from all over Mexico and even Latin America. So we talked uh, something about it and how many people um, actually find better jobs and they have like better earnings, but there are a lot of people that are, they cannot um, get these kind of jobs and they're like in the streets and give like a sad image of, of all the poor people. So those were hard decisions, though, to make what you would leave yeah. in and what you would take in. Yeah, because, like I said, it turned out like so different from the beginning, but we still like it very much. Mm. Yeah. And you said you told me that this was part of a larger series yeah. of stories. Can you just briefly explain, because I thought that was interesting about okay. the breadth of this. Uh, the show is like a one-hour show called Audio Postales, like audio postcards, like Sarah said. Um, this is like a bicultural and bilingual uh, show that... It was made by students from Los Angeles and students from Tijuana. We were uh, five in each place, so we had maintained like contact, like for from emails and phone and things like that. So we came up with uh, a free, like it was like free subject to do the piece. But at the end, everyone has like something to do with the borders. So we choose borders like our uh, global subject. Sub- uh, from our, the, the theme, because they were like uh, physical borders, like the one from the from Tijuana and San Diego, that is like a wall. We had social borders, like from poor people and, and, and rich people, uh, sexual borders even. There was this piece about how is it to be a, a gay, gay uh, immigrant in the U.S. And there was another piece that I liked very much, it was made with sounds from the from the wall that that separates the mm-hmm. U.S. from Tijuana. It's like a steel and rotten uh, wall, like a three meters tall, I think. And I've, I have my friend that he loves like everything that has to be with them, to do with music. Mm. So we went and got some noises and with rhythms and things like that. It was very interesting, and he mixed it up with with. Uh, uh, electric guitar, so it came out like, very, very interesting. Mm. Very nice. Thank, Thank you. you. Does anybody Thanks. have any questions? Please? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, musical chairs. Sure. I've asked them to, so I don't want to have to go like this, that each time they move down. Do I go to this chair? Or at yeah. the end? No, well, uh, 
Yeah, like maybe it's easier if everybody moves okay. on down. You can go to the end. Even though it, I, I'll miss you. Uh, are you going to be on Jeopardy soon? Or, uh, no. Huh? That one guy, is, he's there for life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Spencer Scott works uh, with Blunt Youth, the Blunt Youth Radio Project. And um, let me explain a little bit about uh, Blunt Youth. It's um, it's a community. Uh, it's it's a it's a program, right? Is a is there's one yeah. program that you do, yeah. and it's hosted by community uh, radio station WMPG. And you are in um, Portland, Maine, right? Yes. Okay. And you um you in, it, you have st- high school students from around around the Portland, yeah, the right? Greater Portland area, right? Yeah. They get involved to get them involved in radio. And there's also one other. There's also another program that works with incarcerated youth. I understand. Yeah, the LCDYC Blunt. It's like a section of Blunt. If you're 18, you can go there and, and work with them, and they produce their own pieces. And how long have you been with Blunt? Um, two years now, just two. about. Oh wow! And when did it start? Because I didn't see that in the. Um, how long has it been around? Last uh, the beginning of last summer. Okay, so you. Or no, yeah, two. Ten. Do, do one of you just want to sit here? Or is somebody? <laughs> I've been here for ten years. Ten. I've been eighteen the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't age. Still has braces. <laughs> yeah. How long Blunt Youth is around ten years? Ten years. Oh really? Yes. So it's been. A, I um, I didn't I didn't know that. This that's really great. Just like youth uh, radio. Well, they started ninety nine. So. Oh, okay. Wonderful. Okay. So um, and you are? I'm Claire Holman. I started Blunt. Oh. Spencer is a senior at uh, Cape uh, Elizabeth High School, and you plan on being a journalist for a really long time. Um, I hope to, yeah, some sort of journalism. Yeah. Some sort. <laughs> yeah, there are so many types. Really? Tell us some of the types. I'm really curious. Are you patronizing me? <laughs> no. I love it. I love it. <laughs> He gets a job. He gets a job. <laughs> okay. Um, I, um, you did a profile of Sergeant Jim Johnson, Marine National Guardsman, who was called to duty to go to Iraq. Now, right. that's sort of essentially the setup. Is there anything else you want to tell us before we go into this story? Um, no, I think just listen. Let's listen. Okay. Sergeant Jim Johnson joined the military when he was just 18 years old. 38 years later, he's still a soldier. I was in the regular Army for four years. And when I got out of the regular armies and I went up to Aroostook County, I joined the Guard then. And I now have 24 years in the Guard, total 29 years military service. Now Jim is 48 years old. He's been married for 26 years. He's a 15-year-old son and an 18-year-old daughter. In his 25 years with the National Guard, Jim Johnson has never had to leave his dog, his car, his job, or his family for more than two weeks, except for in 1998 when he spent 17 days building roads in Guatemala. Now he's leaving for 18 months. In July, Sergeant Jim Johnson and the 133rd Engineers Battalion of the Maine National Guard were alerted that they may be called up to active duty. They were instructed to make out wills, select powers of attorney, and otherwise make sure their homes, cars, and workplaces could survive a year more of their absence. On November 10th, Sergeant Johnson was told that he and his 19 mechanics, as well as the other 480 members of the 133rd, were being deployed to the Middle East, most likely Iraq. He gathered his wife and two children around him and told them that he would not be leaving for the usual two weeks of training this year, but rather would be spending a year and a half overseas. What did they say when you told them that? Ah, shock, denial, you know, 30 years in, you can't go. They, they believe in what I'm doing, 
but it's still a shock that you're going to leave for a year and a half? And you've been home for 26 years. We've been married 26 years. Well, what do you mean you're leaving? I'm going to be left for a year and a half? It was hard for them to take. Having told his family, Jim Johnson then had to tell his 19 mechanics that their group had been activated. Basically, the ones I knew that had families and stuff, I basically, I basically told them, I said, I'm sorry, but we got the call. We, we need to go. You need to report in on this date. You need to sit down with your families and tell them what's going on and, and prepare them because uh, we do have the call and we're being activated. What sort of reactions did you have from the soldiers? Same as from the family. There was shock, silence, not quite sure what to say. Uh, are you kidding? Is this real? Yeah, it's real. It seems to be that a lot of these soldiers may have not really anticipate this. Did you anticipate this when you joined the National Guard? that you may be called up? It's always in the back of your mind, but like I said, I've been in 29 years and never been called up. And it's always been one week in a month, go somewhere, and then in the, in the summertime, it's been two weeks in the summer, but never a year and a half, never a deployment. I, that's what you train for, that's what you get ready for, but you just don't expect it's really gonna happen. And then it happens. Are you at all scared of going over there? Oh, I'm very scared. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you, it's a scary shock, you know, a scary thought. I'm just praying that I'm going over there with 19 people, and in a year I come home with all 19 people. What would you say you're most scared of? Losing one of my people. What about yourself? Is there any, I mean, it's a very selfless thought, but are you worried about your own safety, your own health? Well, I look at it this year. I'm very blessed. I have a, a daughter who's 18, and she's starting college, and I have a son that's 15. I don't really have what I call young kids. I've been married 26 years, and I just look. I've had a good life. If I go over there and something happens to me, at least I'm going to die happy. So that, that, I mean, that's the way I'm looking at it. If you had the choice, if another man or another battalion could take the place of you and your men... Would you take that opportunity, or, or would you go? Oh, boy. I prefer not to go, but I'm going to go over and do my job, because that's what I've been trained to do. How do you feel about leaving your family? I, I mean, your wife is not going to have their husband there, your children won't have their father there. How do you feel about having to leave them for one and a half years? That's going to be hard. Uh, like I said, my, well, my daughter's be graduating this year, so I'm going to miss a graduation. I haven't missed one of her soccer games in four years. So I miss her graduation. I miss her going to college. Her first, she'll be done her first year of college before I get back. Miss all the soccer games at college. My son, I'll miss a year and a half, but we just started. As you get older, you know how your family gets closer together? We were just getting into that area where my son and I have spent time working for a local TV station filming sports games and working together and having a good time, and I'm really going to miss that, and all the birthdays and anniversaries, and things that I think that makes you think it, we take for granted, you know, giving your kids a hug, you know, how was your day today, do you have a good day, do you need help with homework, all that is that I've take for, taken for granted all these years, I can't, I got, well, I've got about six days left, and then that's it, I won't see them now for a year and a half. That's going to be hard. What do you think you'll miss the most about Maine, about your family? What do you think you'll miss the most? 
just seeing my wife walking back and forth or seeing the kids come in and out the door. You know how teenagers are, especially 18, they have a car, they're never home. So you, you catch them. Hey, how was your day? What are you up to? Where are you going? What time are you coming home? And things like that. And just talking to them. And even if we're not talking, just seeing them. Seeing their smile, seeing them when they're happy, when they're sad. For 29 years, they're used to me leaving. And I don't think it's going to hit home until about two weeks after I leave because they're so used to, for the last 24 years, I leave. Two weeks later, I walk back in the door. But this time, I leave, they're going to be sitting here thinking, okay, two weeks, he's coming back in the door. But I'm not coming back this time. Not for a year, year and a half. Early in January, Jim Johnson and the 133rd Engineers Battalion left for training at Fort Drum, New York. They are now stationed in Iraq. Reporting for Blunt Radio, this is Spencer Scott. This is a tough subject. Yeah. <laughs> it's an emotional subject. How, yeah. do you, how do you prepare yourself for like, your, the questions? Did you go in with a certain set of questions? Um, actually, yeah, I did. I, um, I actually I found out about uh, Sergeant Jim Johnson in an article in the local newspaper. Um, and so I got his information, his contact information, I, and I set it up. And I just sort of thought, I mean, one of the difficult things is it's just so removed from my life. I've never had a... Um, a family member be in the service. I've never had to deal with any of this stuff, and so I just tried to think of just as a as a person, what would I what would I be thinking about before I left and had to go for go to war? And so I just sort of thought of those questions about what he might be, what what he was thinking, and try to get him to tell you know speak to me about that. Well, you had some wonderful questions in there. You seem very natural, and I went, was um, wondering if, and I know you must be. Do you listen to a lot of public radio um, yourself? Do you? <laughs> Yeah, my mother's always, I've always, it's always been in the house, and, you know, recently I've started actually listening. And it's always how. in your head. So, <laughs> so going in there, I mean, what are the qualities that you think as, as a good interviewer? Because this is different than some of the other stories we're hearing, and they're more, you know, with sound and produced stories, more produced. And so you went in, and it, it seemed like it was starting out as a reporter story, and then it, it, it fell right into this wonderful, you know, easy conversation. So what, what are those qualities that you, were, that you were looking for in yourself when you're sort of preparing? What do you think about? Um, I think the most significant thing is, like David Isay said, you just have to sound interested. And when he, when uh, Mr. Jo- Sergeant Johnson recognized that, I think that we both sort of had more of a conversation and trusted each other, that he, um, he, he trusted me and then also that I trusted him to be, to be honest and tell me what he was really feeling. And we just sort of fell into that sort of conversational style. Well, he was, he was wonderfully comfortable. Yeah. And did you feel that you were a part of that, that you were helping him to feel comfortable about it? Yeah, yeah. He, right from the start, he was, he was just incredibly nice. And I think maybe because he has a son that I think is 14 or 15. So um, I think that we could just relate maybe more than he could relate to someone, you know, 40-year-old reporter or journalist. Mm, interesting. Now, did you did he go to the studio or did you go to his house? No, I actually I went to the armory where there were. It was actually interesting. I, I saw them preparing and loading up all their equipment, and then we went to you know back office and did the interview there. So it's where he worked. Is where you, yeah, yeah, the the armory where they were. So this is interesting. Did you consider um, 
having any of those scenes in your story starting it that way, sort of placing him at his office because this is where he is now and then he's going to be leaving? Did you think of that at um, all? Yeah, I had thought about that, but th- this is one of the earlier pieces I had done, so I, hadn't, I didn't have as much mm-hmm. experience in, you know, building scenes. I just sort of, I had the narration in the front and uh, at the end and just sort of plopped the interview in the middle. But I mean, apparently, I, I think it worked because the interview was so sort of conversational and close. It was a, it was a very warm interview. Yes, I definitely felt that, and I think that we we're hearing so many stories, obviously, all over the airwaves about you know people who are going off. And I mean, I've heard a lot too, but I really I, I really felt for this for this gentleman and the two of them sitting there in their conversation, and it was wonderfully refreshing. And and I truly didn't we all we all <laughs> we sort of all knew exactly what he was talking about about missing a family member, and you start thinking, oh my God, what if I went away for a year and a half. And, of course, this is happening all around us with, um, in the war situation. Do we have some questions? You're an awfully quiet audience. <laughs> First of all, I want to, want to say that I've really enjoyed both the pieces that we've heard so They're far. Wonderful. They're wonderful. Um, I'm curious if you've had a chance to do a follow-up story. Um, I actually I haven't, um, but I have talked to his wife, and it was interesting, actually. Um, the I'm not sure if it was actually the same reporter, but... Uh, uh, a reporter and a photographer from the local newspaper went to Iraq and were in the city where um, the 133rd, his unit, is stationed. And I, I hadn't really realized how I thought that as a National Guard unit, as an engineer's battalion, that it wouldn't be that rough. But um, they were actually interviewed on, on Claire Holman, our advisor show, and it was amazing to hear what is actually going, going on over there. Like they get hit by mortar fire every day, and when they go through the town muzzle where they're stationed, they have to just speed through where they're going to start getting shot at. It's not at all less, you know, difficult for them because they're National Guard or an Engineers Battalion. So that's that's sort of. I haven't done a follow-up story, but I know where he is and what he's going through, to some extent. Yes. Did you? I'm sorry. Did you say you're? Are you 18? Uh, seven, 17. 17. I forget my own age sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but not um, musicals. <laughs> I kept thinking through the whole thing that there was something in the fact that here was this man of an age where you should or would be going to war, interviewing yes. this man of an age who would be interviewing you. And I wondered how much you were thinking about what you would do in his position or what you would... I mean, even that dynamic, I don't know if you thought about it at all, or also how much were you thinking about what it would be like to go over? I, I absolutely was. That's how I tried to come up with my questions. And also it was amazing to see that all these guys weren't, you know, 50 years old. They were 17-year-old, you know, 18-year-old, 20-year-old. And he, that's the one thing he asked me about at the end. He said, what is it like for you to see all these guys that aren't 48 that are your age going off to fight in a war? And that was that was incredible to see it was almost devastating that you know i could be doing this you did ask him that he, he asked yeah. me that after the interview right uh, wow that's wonderful so what other stories are you working on Spencer? um right now we're actually doing a, a presidential series and i'm the like series producer for that so i've sort of changed gears and done less features and now i'm sort of running that series thing <laughs> doesn't that have to air soon <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we have a show Monday, so I'm sort of. Oh, you got to get back. Yeah, that was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great. Okay, musical chairs. Hi, Erin. Hello. How are you? Good. How You're not you? nervous, are you? Oh no, 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 no never. Erin is with uh, Youth Utopia, and uh, Rachel, you're going to come up here. If, any, if there is a um, representative um, from each of the groups, I, I have this little chair here that you can come up and hang out. It would be great to see you up here. 
Rachel Goodman is, you, you have a, is your title executive producer of Utopia? Utopia is out of um, KUSP in Santa Cruz. Um, actually, it's, Utopia is the name of a, a monthly teen radio news magazine call-in show, and they focus mostly on um, teen health issues affecting the lives of the youth in their area in Central California. And um, we, we were going to be um, hearing a different story um, that was not Aaron's, and Aaron's is the, Aaron is the representative, Aaron, uh, Aaron Escobar. Um, but instead, we switched a story of Aaron. So I have not heard this one um, yet either, so we could all listen, um, listen to it. But first of all, Aaron, um, you've been with uh, Utopia since its beginning, 2002. Yep. And you're a senior? Harbor High School in Santa Cruz. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> so you started in at the beginning. Were you one of the original? Yeah. Students. And you've done stories that says on from everything from uh, peer pressure to sex and religion. Yeah. You like I, those subjects? <laughs> just everything. Like, we do stories ranging from all those different things, so I'm like, whatever. I'll, I'll pick up a reporter story here. Well, tell us a little about this one that we're going to hear. Um, the one that you're going to hear is about... We did a whole, um, since we're a teen health show, we did a whole show on drinking and teens in Santa Cruz. And there was lots of stories on, like, people who do drink and those drinking stories. And I decided to do a story on the teens who chose not to drink and how that affected them and what it was like to be a teen who didn't drink and how that affected your social life in high school, since it seems to be so relevant. Hi, this is Erin Kate reporting for Utopia, And in this story, I was after looking for teens who didn't drink and wondering how that affected their social life because since drinking is so socially acceptable here in Santa Cruz and I think it's nationwide, it's pretty acceptable within teens, I wanted to know how that affected people's lives and why they made that decision not to drink. Why do you choose not to drink? There's just such a great risk that you take when, uh, when you choose to do something like that and it's kind of ridiculous to do because when you think about it all people drink for is you know to get away from their problems and I have drank before but what I realized is that you know when you come down and you start feeling really shitty you realize your problems are still there and so it really doesn't solve a whole bunch because it's stupid and you make stupid choices and it can negatively affect others around you as well as yourself have you ever seen any of those negative effects? I have, and trying to throw up and not having anything come out does not feel good at all. Why do you choose not to drink? Um, well, I like being in control of my body and like what I do, and I feel that like if I drank, then I wouldn't have that control and I wouldn't enjoy that at all. And I also, even though I don't drive, I aspire to be the designated driver, that will be me when I can drive. And, um, and in health, they talk about how you should always party with someone who's sober, and that's me. More often than not, growing up in middle school, that was when the bulk of the decisions of whether or not to drink or stay alcohol-free came upon me. And it just seemed like in middle school, um, when kids would get drunk, they would get wasted and plowed and end up doing really stupid things. So it just turned out that the overwhelming population of people who did drink were just borderline retarded assholes who just made horrible decisions in life and would grow up to be car dealership owners or something like that. <laughs> so then, in going to high school, I already had this preconceived notion that anyone who drank would probably be an asshole. 
And then I come to meet, as my freshman and sophomore year, what seemed to be some stereotypical jocks who were very mean and didn't treat people with all that much respect. And they also spent their Friday, Saturday nights, and probably some mornings before class, getting wasted and just doing really stupid things. So the overwhelming decision that I had not to drink just became from the fear that I would turn into all that I hated from my peers. But now, in my junior and then now in my senior year, simply the only reason why I choose not to drink is just because it's not how I have fun. I can do so many other things that I enjoy and, and that make me happy and I don't need some other outside source to do that for me. How does not drinking affect your social life in high school? It doesn't because what I've really tried to do is teach my friends and teach, you know, just present out to, uh, you know, my peers, my community that you don't have to drink to have a good time. I mean, I, I hosted, you know, my 16th birthday party was uh, a uh, drug and alcohol free environment and people are still talking about it. Well, it doesn't affect my social life at all because my friends know my position and they know that I don't care if they drink. Well, a lot of my friends do and I don't know, it's just, I sort of am there and I don't drink and then they do and I sort of like take care of them, you know, I'm the nurse of, the, of my friends, you know, and so it's like not a big deal for me, like so it doesn't bother you that your friends well, drink? It doesn't bother me, but like I'll be like, dude, stop. You're way going over your limit. You're going to hurl. <laughs> when you drink or smoke, you don't have to take responsibility for your actions as much. And so you feel like you can do whatever you want and not have to take responsibility for it the next day. And when you're not drinking, then you're a lot more aware of what you're doing and how you're affecting other people. Well, I actually feel it's helped me for the better because now instead of just going to a party and getting drunk and knowing all these people who get drunk with me who really don't know me at all, I've been able to make some real serious personal connections with people who are actually all completely mentally there when I'm talking to them and I've made some serious emotional bonds with people and I know that a lot of my friends really do care about me and I'm not just a drinking buddy to them. That's really awesome. So, it doesn't, do, you, do your friends drink? Um, I do have some friends who drink, and that's fine. But sadly to say, some of those people are not my closest friends. For Utopia, this is Aaron Kid Escobar reporting out. I, I think some of the hardest things to deal with in radio is when you go out and you get what we call vox. You know what that is? You know yeah. that term? We've all dealt with that, right? And you have, you know, so many hours of, you know, people just talking and asking questions and trying to string it together. And the idea of pacing and getting wonderful comments. And you did, you, you zoomed in on that one, that one guy that it was, that you, you really knew, you really knew you had him. So what, what, what did you go through? Tell me about this process, because we all, we all deal with it. I'd love to hear it from you. Well, this is like, I've only done like five or six pieces, and most of them are like this, and it's going out and talking to my peers about their feelings on the subject so I can get like the most amount of voices into our show. But, um, it just, 
What was the question? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, going through that whole process, you had how many hours of tape did you did you go through? Oh, I probably had like an hour of tape or something like that for a five minute piece. For a five minute piece, and we've we've all dealt with that, right? Yeah. So, how did you make your choices <laughs> when you went through? You just immediately no, that doesn't, you know, I don't like that. Yeah, Rachel, I went through, and we'd go through and be like, that person didn't say anything important. <laughs> That's not interesting, and we'd choose the people who had like stories to tell or something like a new viewpoint, or, and so that was the way we just chose them. And then a lot of them take like a long time to get to their point and they go through all this other stuff but you just cut that out and get to the meat of it. But it seems to me with this program that you have and you, you did mention that you, you do some other volunteer work or you work at a... I do drug and alcohol education, prevention education in my community. But you interviewed, you interviewed a, group, a group of people that you have worked with, right? I interviewed some people from that group as well as some people from my school just like randomly. So it occurs to me that um, the type of show that you have and you deal with public issues and this sort of sense of responsibility, as opposed to a, a program or a news magazine program where you're being, you're being a reporter and you're reporting on a story, you, you feel a tremendous sense of responsibility in a program like this because you're bringing issues to your community. Mm-hmm. And that's what you think of each time when you're doing a story. And I'd love to hear about that process in your head, about what you, the stories that you choose and how that makes you feel. Um. I love it because I do a lot of different work in my community with all different kinds of groups. And when you get to go out and talk to them and, like, say, this is going to go on public radio and you're going to be heard in, like, all parts of our county and stuff like that, people are totally into it. And people, I know that they all work really hard and they're like, nobody knows about us. Like, we're probably, like, I know a lot of my friends who don't drink, they're like, nobody knows. Like, everybody just, like, drinks in high school and nobody talks about the people who don't drink. And so, like, they're all stoked to be interviewed and, like, talk to about it because it's not something that... It's like normal from their <laughs> point of view. I'm sorry, you have some questions. Yes. Um, great, great piece. Well, mm-hmm. Great pieces, all of you. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that none of the kids said um, it's really hard to be, to be a non-drinker. I feel a lot of pressure from people, or I feel some pressure from people. And I'm wondering, oh, did, did none of the kids say that? Um, and so you didn't get it? Did you think about trying to find somebody who would say that? Or did you feel like you were trying to make a point with this piece, which was, you can do it? Yeah, I definitely feel like I was trying to make more of a point with this piece that was like, it is possible, and these are kids who don't feel out of the social loop for doing it, because there's, like, there is that whole group of people who's like, I don't do it, and I feel really out of it, and nobody wants to be my friend, and, like, I don't do anything on my Friday nights, and I was like, no, we're going to talk to the people who do have a social life and do get out there and feel like they're just as cool as everybody else who don't drink. We also did a whole show about peer pressure in which we talked extensively about all these things, about how people go to parties and what exact interactions tend to happen there and why they have a hard time getting out of the drinking scene. Yeah, That's what I love about the idea of this program because it... it it seems like it deals with a lot of issues that we're not... we're, We're just hearing one small segment of it. Yes? Uh, speaking of peer pressure... And also, Teen Health, have you ever had any really heated discussions as to whether to use students' names or, you know, if, if, if any of these students ask, you know, please don't use my name in this piece? Um, actually, most people I, I interviewed, they were like, oh, do I have to say my name or am I anonymous or can I put my name on there? And in the end, it was like a mix. So I was just like, we'll just cut everybody's name out and make it simple instead of putting some in and some not. But most people... Most people would have had their names in there, just a few of them were like, um, I don't want my name on the radio. I don't want people to know who I am. So. 
along those lines, how hard was it to find people who are willing to talk about the fact that they don't drink in your high school? Um, well, being like the representative I am and people knowing that I'm like a non-drinker and a person who works for that, like it wasn't all that hard because the people who I talk to a lot of the time are those people. So I didn't think it was that hard, but I can see from the other point of view it would have like... If I'd been in the drinking scene and all that, it probably would have been a harder task of finding these people. I'm curious if um, my mom's an alcoholic, so I didn't drink for a long time because I was afraid I was going to become an alcoholic. Did anybody bring that up? Like, I don't drink because my mom is an alcoholic and I have potential for that or something? Nobody brought that up. In this. I think it was maybe probably the way I asked the question, the way I talked to people about it, but that wasn't brought up. But that would have been an interesting thing to bring into it. We also had um, a segment of teen alcoholics telling how they got into a program that's helping them recover. So we had some really disparate experiences discussed in the show. Yeah. Well, I, I'm also curious because it, this whole idea that we're we're hearing snapshots from from each of them instead of you know a varied you know, section of their work and. Thinking about a program like this, I'm really, I'm really fascinated by it because you've been there two years. The program, the show is how two years old. Um, where, where would you like to be? Where would you like this program to be? And you know, let's say five years, um, even if you're not a part of it any longer. What, what is the goal for you? Um, well, I've actually, I've been super inspired by this conference. And what we haven't done a lot of, I think, in our show is personal pieces and how it relates to your life and bringing that really personal, deep component into it. So I would love to see it go from like a lot of getting other teen voices as well in our community, but also getting people's personal stories and that go that hit hard or hit deep and that sort of thing. Well, well good luck with it. it sounds wonderful. Okay. Next we have Dulce Dulce Maria Mora. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay. Um, you're with Radio Arte in, here in Chicago. Do we have a representative from Radio Arte here? Are there anybody else? Oh, come on up. I, you know, I need glasses. I can't read your name from here. You are Jorge. Valdivia. Um, ooh. <laughs> and you are, just tell us who you are. My name is uh, Jorge Valdivia. I'm the general manager of Radio Arte 90.5 FM. We're a youth initiative of the Mexican Fine Arts Center Museum. And uh, we were, it's a youth-operated radio station uh, that's uh, been in existence since 1986. Okay. Wonderful. That was good. Um, you uh, just started this past June in radio, so yes, you're I did. really, really just learning all this, huh? Yes. That must be daunting. <laughs> Tell us about your experiences so far. Uh, well, it's it's been nice. I, I've always been interested in journalism, but... Um, really not, you know, looking into it. There were other things that that were more important to me. And this opportunity came up, and I've really been surprised that, that I've really gotten into it, and I really like it a lot. And they've, you're an on-air personality now, too, so you moved up quickly, huh? <laughs> well, uh, in Radio Arte, uh, since we have uh, the whole radio station to ourselves, um, we have a lot of time, and all the, the trainees at Radio Arte get to have their, their programming hours and get to get that experience on there, which some people in other stations don't get that. We get to go on there and, you know, really 
you know, get experience, you know, make mistakes and, you know, learn to correct them. So that's very nice. Well, and tell us a little bit about the process, since we are hearing about different programs. Maybe now it would be nice to hear um, how you all work together. Do you have, like, a big meeting in the morning and you decide what stories you might do? I mean, what's your process? Well, the, the training program is um, basically uh, in stages. We start with training, we learn the ropes, and then we start, you know, doing uh, on-air time. And we have partners. Sometimes we go on alone. Sometimes we have two people or three people on air at the same time. And we get together. We're basically, we're, we tend to be very independent. We, we get together. We think about what we want to talk to. And if we need help, we go to Jorge. We go to Silvia. We have all these people at the station that can help us and to get the, the thing on the air. So do you listen to each other's pieces, or do you have an editor? Um, each piece has an editor at the end, or are you smiling? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, if, well, my, my piece that we're going to hear is, is a great example, because I basically just went out and did this. I went to the radio station, and Sylvia popped in, and she's like, are you busy? Yeah, I'm going to do the story. Oh, okay. And then, you know, when I finished it, I showed it to her, and she said, okay, fine. Air it on your time. So this you did you put it together pretty quickly. Yes, it was. A, I think it was on a Wednesday. This event took place, and I aired it on Friday. So today. And tell us, it's called um, "Give Peace a Chance." Just give us a little bit of a setup. Yes, um, I heard about this. Uh, I don't want to say rally, but it was like a congregation uh, where musicians uh, like to call them coalition of musicians from Chicago. Uh, we're gonna perform the song "Give Peace a Chance." And uh, in researching and doing the interview, I found out it's not just going out and singing the song, but it was a whole project of trying to get the song together, of getting people from around the world to send their own versions of the song and make it sound like, you know, there are people that want peace and it is, you know, this great unity of people saying we want to give peace a chance. And the piece is basically about the, the performance live that was here in, in Daily Plaza in September. Okay. In 1969, the war in Vietnam raged on, and hundreds of soldiers and civilians were dying each day. John Lennon and Yoko Ono staged their second Benin for Peace in Montreal. In their hotel room, with video cameras and recording equipment rolling, John and Yoko, fans, journalists, and fellow musicians came together to record the anti-war anthem, Give Peace a Chance. Thirty-five years later, the war in Iraq continues to kill and wound soldiers and civilians alike. But like John and Yoko before them, a group of Chicago musicians feel it is their duty to remind everyone that war is not the answer and to give peace a chance. Musicians United for Peace got together Wednesday at noon in Daly Plaza to sing Lennon's timeless song. Among them were Jay Gebner of Instant Karma, a John Lennon tribute band. That's what we're here today to sing uh, Give Peace a Chance with uh, uh, Musicians United for Peace. So we got about 40 of us here and plus the crowd that's here today. So it's going to be a great treat. The atmosphere was that of joyful congregation, and even the noise of city workers drilling in the background couldn't mar the participants' enthusiasm. Thank you so much for coming, and I just want to thank the city workers for doing wonderful uh, drilling and sawing. They're drilling for peace. Drilling for peace, baby. 
musicians around the world and we're we're trying to get it off the ground in a grassroots kind of a way with with our immediate friends and people that we know here in our hometown of Chicago one of the participating vocalists was Martes Roker 21 a music major at Columbia College for the most part I have relatives who are over there fighting for us and for the most part they're still in harm's way and for us to have peace, they've got to come back. And for them to be here would mean that they don't have to worry about fighting, especially when they believe that there should be peace. And even though they're over there fighting, risking their lives so that we can have it, true peace will only be restored when there's no more fighting, when there's no more war. The group's main objective is to sing John Lennon's Give Peace a Chance as a united, nonpartisan, pro-peace statement. A documentary is also planned. It will detail the process behind the movement, and feature the event held at Daly Plaza last Wednesday. It will also include submissions made by musicians around the world. Kathy Richardson invites all musicians to join in the project. We have a website, uh, musiciansunitedforpeace.org, and it pretty much explains what the project is. If there are other, uh, it, it's really we're inviting musicians of any genre, any uh, level of name recognition or whatever, just to send us, um, if they want to be part of it, send us uh, your version of the song. In the key of E, and the tempo is 84, and we're going to take everybody's track and put it onto one master, so it will be, it, hopefully, in, in uh, theory, it will be voices from around the world all saying the same thing. like John Lennon's song, Imagine. It, it holds more truth now than it ever has, and uh, basically, we're just trying to get people to remember that, you know, war is not the answer. There's other ways that, that you could, you know, uh, work things out. We just want to end the war and, and have a chance at peace in the world, and that's, that's why we're all here. So, whoever's in office, we're not saying, you know, vote down George Bush or vote, vote for John Kerry. It's not about that. It's about just having peace in the world. 
If you want more information or would like to participate in this project, visit musiciansunitedforpeace.org. The deadline for submissions is Thursday, October 21st, 2004. Dulce Maria Mora, por Radio Arte. I brought my own train. <laughs> it is always so difficult to tell a story based on just one event. For me, I know that if I would go out and, and covering a rally or something, it's always hard to sort of how do you how do you tell a story? How do you use your tape? So, what did you go through when you when you were out there and you're just gathering all those sounds? Yes, I, I had a lot of interviews and um, not long interviews, but there were a lot of different people and there were. You know, different moments, different phrases or, or sentences that were, I was like, oh, I just want to have that in there. And I wish I had a little bit more time and I didn't want to make it too long. But, um, you know, there were different reasons why I picked uh, the parts that I picked. Uh, Martes Roker, it was important because he was a, a young person. He's young. He wasn't around when the song originally came out and because his family was over there. And that kind of stressed the point that they're not against, um, the people that are over there fighting, that they're against this, you know, war, just war in general, and not against these people that are over there. Mm. And now, um, also, when you're when you're going through this process, the question always becomes, well, what do I start with? What's my beginning? And you started with this historical setup with John Lennon. So tell me about how you came up with that. Why? Well, the fact that they picked this song uh, shows, uh, it, it, I just... In my mind, I just saw this correlation, and with the elections, we're hearing a lot about Vietnam, and it's being compared a lot to the war in Iraq right now. And it just instantly came to mind, you know, this this relation between how back then John was against uh, this war in Iraq, in Vietnam, sorry, and um, and the song and how people came together, and now we're seeing that again in in this event. It just came to mind immediately. But you're also relating it to a history, of course, that happened before you were born. And how much did you relate to this history? I mean, were you, did you feel comfortable enough to sort of telling that story, um, reading about it? Had you ever heard of John Lennon or that yes. before? You had? I'm, I'm kind of the resident Beatlemaniac at oh, Radio okay, Arthur, so. <laughs> Great opportunity that, that was like the, that, That's one of the important things that I, I heard about this and because of my interest in their music and in the, their history um, was kind of the reason why I went there, ap- apart from the peace aspect of it. And it was interesting just to see that it wasn't just this rally, but it was this whole big project going on. Mm. Now, also, when you when we heard the story of, and we heard the actualities, and what we didn't hear under your tracks necessarily were the sound from the rally. Um, and normally, when we would go out into you know an event, you would record all the ambient sound around you and then mix it underneath. To have, do you do do you do that um, for your program? Or you were on deadline and you you didn't have time? Or um, yes, it, it I, I do do that. And um, in this instant, it was in part the deadline, but it was also a, a sort of since I started from this historical point of view, mm-hmm. I, I kind of wanted to take myself out of the the story a little bit and kind of just as if I were just looking 
uh, from the outside into this event in a way. So it was more like you were thinking of it as a as an essay, uh, sort of an essay in your head, and then using the sound to to explain that. Um, I'm not sure. I went through that whole process and came up with that word, but yes, I guess you could describe it as that. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting perspective. Yeah, good. good, good. <laughs> Any questions, please, of the audience? Oh. Uh, I was just really excited by the fact that you had the the drill noise. Like it's like a radio nightmare. You're like, oh my god, I can hardly hear the person for the drill and how you worked that in. And I'm interested to, to know, like, it sounds like you had some other good tape that you were making choices between and why you did choose to use what a lot of people would think was bad sound, but I think was used really well there. Um, well, in our training, we, we heard uh, a story, and I believe it's by Ira Glass, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So, And uh, we talked about the... the on soap moment and there was a covering an oil spill and this girl was saying oh we use Don soap why do you use and it was just like this little quirky thing phrase that she used and it, it just that's the thing you remember from that piece I still remember that yeah. and Great. and I was there and, I, and you know like she said it was like a oh, nightmare I was like god oh, there's so much noise you know and even the, the performers because they were you know doing this for the master tape that they hope to, to get out, they started, oh, God, is that going to be on the whole time? And, um, and it, I just thought, and I was like, yeah, that's my dawn moment, you know? That's the little Good moment you. that you, you hear and you Excellent. remember that. And well, this is interesting that you're talking about this, because you're, you're, what you're really talking about is drawing on inspiration, right? Things that you've heard and taking ideas and trying to incorporate into what, what you want to do in experimenting, because you're all in such a wonderful space where you can experiment. And one of the big <laughs> problems we talk about within public radio is that, you know, the more professional we get, the we, we sort of take less and less chances. And, and yet there are still places where we, where we hope we can take chances. And so in your, in your perspective, I'd love to ask each of you if you have thoughts on this about your inspiration, where, where you draw it from. And how do you hope to use that to create your own your own radio? Just and your thoughts, Spencer. I'm gonna you're looking, so I'm gonna ask you first. <laughs> um, I one of the things I, I sort of struggle with struggle with is that, um, like I said, um, NPR has been playing in my house, you know, since I since I can remember, and I've always heard that sort of radio. And I think I've tried when I started out, I tried to sort of mimic that, but then coming here and hearing what all these kids are doing. It, it shows me that there's so much more that you can do. And when I come to these conferences, I want to go home and try that, that new stuff. So I, um, when originally I'm sort of inspired, or it's really just the only thing I know is what I've heard all my life, which is NPR and that sort of style. But coming to these conferences by my own peers is what really inspires me, that there's all this other stuff that you can do with radio and sound. That's wonderful. Thank you. Beauty? Well, how do I get my inspiration for my pieces? Some, well, we're, when, you're, when you're trying to think of how you're going to go about a story, I mean, what are you thinking of in your head that, that inspires you to try new things or, or just be who okay. you are in radio? Well, first of all, I try not to be like, to so complicated. Um, uh, I try to, to look at everything, like all the little details of, of my daily life, um, that those details that... They're like I do them every day and every day that I just don't notice them anymore. So 
um, that's uh, most of the things that, that I look around and that's why I try to do not so simple pieces, not so elaborated or serious. Something like that. So um, all the kids and also like grown people can understand like my point of view of, of, of this, I don't know, the subject or the theme. Just, I just try to look at the bright side of, 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 of the things and try to make it like uh, this uh, touch of uh, originality of, of, of that all youth have. Mm-hmm. I just and also it, it sounds like almost like a simplicity. That, yeah. Uh, just to communicate that it, the most important thing is to communicate and not, and not to, to confuse. And remember yeah. times we think when we're starting out, I remember starting out in radio and thinking how you know, use so much sound, use mo- as most, much sound as you can. And I just remember once thinking that I used a, um, just one bird sound created more feeling than trying to mix in all this other sound around it. And just that one simple sound meant so much. And I remember thinking that when I, when I was just starting out and that it sort of dawned on me that the, that the message is communication, not confusion. <laughs> uh, Dulce, how about you? <laughs> um, you know, I'm so I'm, you know, I'm have all my little notes here. Um, Aaron, oh sorry, uh, just um, to get the word out there, and because I don't think youth voices are represented very much in today's society, so I just think it's really important for us to be on the radio, telling people what we have to say and our thoughts on things and our point of view. Mm. Any questions out there for this wonderful group of people? No. Right. Um, I have a question for Bidi Um, I wonder what kind of response you got from um, your community your family and so forth after your piece aired and um, how did you um, I mean I know there's a lot of bilingualism in Tijuana but probably not everybody's bilingual so anyway well actually this this piece was made most of it for to the transformation in the US because we also did uh, another piece but that was in Spanish I mean, we did like both, so, uh, basing on the on the public that we wanted to to show them to. So the the one that was this one in English is like for for the people that live in the U.S. so that they can understand our situation, like living in Tijuana, like the, in the border. How is it for us? And so for like my family and my friends, we made this other piece that is. It's kind of similar, but it talks uh, about Tijuana in a way that these people already know. Uh, like they have like a, this vision. They yeah, they live in Tijuana, so we don't have to explain them um, what's the gringo word or the migra word, some things like that. So that's the difference. So we have like two different publics, so we made two different pieces. So what kind of response did you get? Well, very positive. We have like a mostly all positive. Um, actually, I didn't get. We didn't get like phone calls or things because we we weren't at the station when when they transmitted. It. But Sarah told me that that many people from the from NPR liked it a lot and they liked the simplicity. Like like. And, I want to say that I really like the way you use the two voices and have two people telling the story, and I think that yeah. can work very, very well. And I wish, it, I, wish, I wish it were something we heard more often because uh, yeah. it can really give a lot of movement to the piece. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really nice. Yeah, thank you. Actually, that story made me... I really wanted to hear more. 
my my uh, my daughter was in the car with me, my 13 year old, and we were listening to some of these stories. And um, she just, oh, I just want to hear more. I want to know more about what they're what they're doing. <laughs> so I always leave them wanting more. Yes, I have a question from Radio Arte. Radio Arte. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you guys, um, because it's youth ran, do you do they ever tell you you can't air something? Because the things that I'm familiar with that are youth ran and youth led, like we still have someone hovering over us, like watch this, watch that, and it drives me nuts. But do they like tell you you ever can't? Well, as part of the training, because it is a whole station, and um, one of our, our people there um, said. You know, if we do something wrong, um, we can get fined. And we really, you know, we don't have, like, the budget to be fined, you know, every day by the FCC. So um, so part of the training, we, we do go over those rules. We, we And because it is a process, we, we're giving more responsibility as we go along. And obviously, I mean, if, if you, you do have to have, you know, these people looking over you. But it's not that... Big of a of a hovering over, like you said, we're giving pretty much a lot of freedom. And as far as you know, topics, um, we're pretty you know independent. So far as how we approach them and the actual piece, that that has to be monitored a little bit more. But yeah, we we, we get a lot of freedom, which I've noticed in the conference. Ari, could you just wait one second? Because I, I didn't um, ask the follow up question to Dulce before when I asked about that sort of inspiration question, and I. I wanted to give her a couple more words on that. Um, my inspiration for the piece is, oh, mm, I try to like take something that I am interested in. You know, I've heard a lot of pieces of people that um, tell their personal stories, and I'm not at that point yet to say, you know, I'm going to talk about my life, or uh, it's pretty boring. And, and for one part, and, uh, and another part, it, it's it's difficult to go out and talk about yourself. So I try to. Think of things that are important to me, and then relate them, you know, in a, in a not so personal way, I guess. And you know, I would like to, for a long, long you know, start doing uh, stories that are more personal because they are obviously more powerful, and they and they they emit this emotion, and they make people, you know, listen to you more and you know feel the story as opposed to just hearing it. So. Thank you. Ari, yeah, I really enjoyed all of these, um, and. I feel like I've learned a lot from hearing how you do things. Um, I hope this isn't an unfair question. Feel free not to answer it. But I'm curious to hear from each of you what you've learned from hearing each other's work, since your approaches are all so different, and what kinds of things you're bringing home from that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just I think what I learned is that it's just that there are so many different things that you can do. Like I said before, just like when we heard all the pieces, we went to the Sosa um, by uh, Radiwarte, and there are just so many things that people did, and so many techniques that they used, and just ways that they use sound. So I think uh, the things that I learned are, is just that radio can be very diverse in what in, in what you do with it, um, and so it's just it's just very inspiring to see that. My peers are all doing these very different things, and it's all it's all incredibly talented and brilliant. Well, I want to add something. Um, even though my my border story is not like any of this uh, of them, uh, I feel like very 
I identified myself with Erin's piece because uh, before I did the border story about Tijuana, I met, uh, I, I worked in one that was about uh, uh, youth that, that smoked. So I'm like an anti-smoking person. So I was trying to, to find an answer to why do people smoke? Why do they even begin smoking? I don't say that these people are stupid, but I think that smoking, like, without a reason, is very stupid. Because, well, you know, it doesn't bring, like, any good, f neither to you, to your body, or to the environment, the other people around you. So I, I feel like kind of this connection that I'm not the only person that thinks that way, that there are a lot of people more. So I had, like, it, it was very similar, my piece to, to the one Erin did. So that's... Um, it helped me to 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 know that that I'm not the only one that we can we we have like this uh, similar ideas and that we can work on it and make like a better world. Okay, I'll go. Um, one of the things um, Radio Arte hosted a, a listening evening similar to this one on uh, Thursday night at the Mexican Fine Arts Center Museum, and we heard different pieces. And um, I believe it was Donali's piece on the Dream Act, and just the, the they just said, "Oh, this is a piece about the Dream Act," and all the people from my table just turned around, turned to me because I have done a piece on the Dream Act, and it was just so interesting to see how this same topic was approached from totally different um, production um, aspects. You know, the, the whole story, the whole way it was told. The interviews, everything was totally different from mine, and yet it was about the same topic, and it, it, it carried the same message. And it was, uh, you know, and, and that was really surprising to me. I was like, oh wait, you know, I could have done it that way as well. But my my personal experience is my personal view, and being in my community made me do it a different way. And, it, and it, that was one of the most interesting things seeing that. Everybody's fantasy, right? You can hear what everybody else would do with your story. Yeah. I think for me it's just been amazing to hear everybody else's like process that they go through and like hearing about like all the training they go through to get to where they are and how their programs are set up because I don't know, they're all done so differently and like I never went through like any training program of like do your journal diary and do an angry piece and a happy piece and it was like here's a mini disc and our show topic is sex. Go talk to some people. <laughs> Figure out what you want to do. <laughs> and I would love to hear like these people are doing amazing things and it just astounds me that we have such incredible things out there that so many people don't know about but that it's so many people do know about and that it's being talked about. So yeah, I hope that some or all of you guys are going to stay in public radio and keep making radio. And I'm curious, both from being here and from listening to public radio, what you guys are hoping that when you're adults and you're adult radio makers, what's the thing that you say, I'm not going to do that? Or, you know, <laughs> tell us how you're going to be different adult radio makers than us. Thanks. <laughs> Um, personally, I'm not, uh, I just, I made a pact with myself that I would, I would never dance like Sandy Tolan does. <laughs> It'd be difficult. <laughs> just sweat a little less. <laughs> that's it? Oh, that, and on that note. <laughs> oh, I want to say something. 
Um, actually, I, I do not see myself like uh, like um, a serious uh, journalist or reporter because um, right now I'm studying like civil engineering, so it's like something different, very different from from radio. I love doing radio, and I have been learning a lot from it, and I have fun and meet a lot of people. But just being here is like wow, a great, a big deal, no? And so I hope that I can still be working on this um, to keep uh, in touch with a lot of people that can help me uh, keep on working on, on, on new pieces. But I definitely, definitely want to uh, keep the, like, the essence of, of, of simple and original uh, themes and, and, yeah, that, just that, uh, I think. Well, I'm I'm not sure if I'm going to continue in radio, but if I did, I would I try not to go over to the commercial side, you know. <laughs> and as far as public radio, um it it is difficult, I guess, when like you were mentioning that uh when you start getting more professional, you kind of you lose that that candor, that 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 you know innocence that you start out and so you we need just, you. <laughs> and um it, it's important, you know, from a, a technical aspect to, to better your craft and to find new ways and, and better ways to, to get your story across. But it's also very important to try to keep that, that candor. Mm, thank you. And Erin, and then I think we have to wrap up. Um, I don't think I, I don't know if I'd be doing something different, but I'd just be doing what you guys are doing, which is, you know, holding up our First Amendment and getting out there and saying what needs to be said and making sure the truth is told, you know? Mm. Just making sure that stays alive because it's drifting away <laughs> slowly but surely. I don't want that to happen. Well, as you might imagine, it takes a lot of courage to get up here, not only to just play your pieces for people, but just to also say how you say how you feel and have questions being thrown at you. It's difficult for all of us to be up here, but they, they're they're truly amazing, as you can see how articulate and wonderful they are. So, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. You're done. You can go home now.